0: Today on Care Under Fire, I'm with Simon Watson. Watto's career has spanned from playing the tuba and bass guitar in the Navy band to being an Army nurse with special operations and now an ED doctor with operational experience in Southeast Asia, Padang, Solomon Islands and Afghans. It's probably fair to say, what you had an atypical pathway into medicine, um, but so great to have you on.
1: No worries. Thanks, Emma. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, look, it's, it has been a, a fairly atypical pathway. You could say that from, you know, I guess from when I grew up and stuff and going through my schooling and then into the Navy, and then I didn't sort of start having an interest in medicine until quite later in life, so you know, I started a medical degree when I was 38, yeah, and I think, you know, I've always looked back on that and reflected on it and thought, it's a bit weird how I ended up here. And it probably is. But I think it also, um, I've used it at times as a tool to sort of encourage other people to not uh, give up on on becoming a doctor or or becoming, you know, or having a medical career because there's more than um, one way to do it. You don't need to, you know, get high-flying marks in, uh, high school and that type of thing to be able to do medicine I guess.
0: Yeah exactly right you're living living proof of that aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Tell me about your younger years and how you went at school.
1: Yeah um, so I, I grew up in a place called Leon Gatha, which is in South Gippsland in Victoria. Um, my parents uh, were dairy farmers, well, my mum was a nurse and my dad was a dairy farmer so I grew up in, on farms for most of my life and you know it was a fairly you know good upbringing i guess like I, I really enjoyed my time living on the farm um and at one point i thought oh this would be a good career but then quickly realized that milking cows twice a day was a really a really crap way to live to be honest um <laughs> and and quickly qu- quickly put that to bed and i guess um you know in terms of my schooling i didn't i i never ever remember having any interest in school whatsoever I, um, yeah, I went through primary school and that was fine. Got into high school and showed even less interest in school. And I, I went through all the way through to year 12 and finished it. I didn't really hand much more of my work in. So subsequently, didn't actually complete my VCE. I think the, um, the thing that I was really good at at was school was, was doing practical things and doing music. So I always signed up to as many elective music subjects as I could. And got myself into as many like um, music type activities as I could, which got me away from being actually in school learning stuff that was probably going to help me to get into university at some point. Um, and and I guess you know that was kind of the 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 way that it sort of went for me. But when I when I left Lean I was eighteen years old, and I'd been trying to get an apprenticeship for quite a number of years, like you know from about year ten onwards. And um, it was really difficult. There wasn't many apprenticeships around when I went through school, which is in I finished in 1992. And then eventually, I managed to get this apprenticeship as a spray painter. And um, I thought, "Oh, that's my ticket out of here." And I just, I'd only just finished year twelve. Thought, you know, I've got a job. This is my ticket out of the, you know, the farming industry sort of thing. And I took that job. And then three days later, I got a phone call from um, from the navy saying, "Oh, you know." if you still want to join the Navy band, we've got a a position for you. And I went, you know what, that's it. I'm out of here. And I took that and left. And that's how I I sort of got out of Lingatha. Um, And I was sort of the first one to break the mould of my family because no one really left the hometown. No one really did much other than just hang around there, which is all fine, you know, but in the end it wasn't for me, which is, you know, it was just a bit of a sliding doors moment, I guess.
0: So no one in the family in defence at all and you've decided as an 18-year-old to join the navy. Why why the navy out of this, those three services and why the navy band obviously you like music?
1: But... Yeah, um I think there's a couple of reasons. I I had some um I had some good friends one in particular who I went to school with and was in the in the school band with and he went off and joined the Navy band and I still kept in contact with him. And um, I, you know, he, so I guess he sort of influenced my decision to go down the pathway of the Navy. And there'd been a couple of occasions where we'd done uh, school bands, like workshops with the Navy band over the years. And I just really enjoyed the, what seemed like this, you know, awesome career and this great option to, you know, go and play music okay. and the descent, they just seemed so good. And, Oh, that's something to aspire to, and that and that's sort of where it went. And it also presented as something to aspire to, where I didn't have to go to university as well, which which yes. which was not higher my priority. But that said, once I actually got into the navy, I had to go and do the, you know, the normal navy um, uh, recruit school, which was I think it was like thirteen weeks or something back then. And then mm-hmm. once I'd finished that, I then went to the Defence Force School of Music, which was at Simpson Barracks in Watsonia in Melbourne and completed the basic musician's course, which is – you, you can take up to 15 months and most people take around about the 12-month sort of mark, 12-15-month to 15, 15 month mark, I guess, to complete that course and that kind of just prepares you to go and you know, you know, work in a, in a military band environment.
0: So what do they – do they make you audition in that early stage of obviously – Checking, you got some talent there. Of trying, you know, you you doing normal psych and aptitude testing to join the navy. But then, did they make you audition because you put your hand up early and said, "Bandy"? Or
1: uh, yeah, so you apply um, if you're joining as a you know, as a musician. I mean, I'm not sure what it's like now, but when I joined, it was basically you had to have you know a basic level of like musical capability on a specific instrument, I guess. Um, yeah, and then you auditioned, and then they they would then take you on the basis of that audition, as long as you met a certain standard. And then they, you know, often often people who join and used to join back in those days, the it wasn't necessarily that they weren't musically capable to go straight into the band, but they didn't have the skills to operate in the military band. So like you know, knowing all about the ceremonies and how they how they work and all the the prey drill that you need to be able to do really proficiently to. You know, to work in a in a in a military band because that that's the stuff that actually makes makes them look so good. Yeah. You know, to be honest, you could you can be a fairly uh, uh, not average, but I guess you don't have to be a brilliant musician to be in the Navy band. Or you know, back then it was definitely the case. But um you know, as long as you're as long as you're reasonable and you could do everything else really well, you could you, you know you could you could operate quite well in there and do the job really well. So. Um, and that that was sort of the main part of it, I guess, is learning about that that whole military side of being in the in the band,
0: the drill and the uniform and the timing. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah,
1: exactly, yeah. And and it was like, um, so I actually auditioned on the euphonium, and they had no euphonium places.
0: What is a euphonium?
1: <laughs> uh, it's kind of it's like a smaller version. It's a lower brass instrument. It's like a okay. smaller smaller version of a tuba. is a way to picture, I guess. Yeah. But but then when they actually rang me up and they said, oh, look, we don't actually have any euphonium places, but we would like you to come and learn how to play the tuba and become a tuba player in the band if you're interested. And I was like, uh, my, my initial thought was, I'll go and play the triangle if you're going to pay <laughs> me, to be honest. I was like, yeah, sure. Whatever. Just give me the job. I'm out of here.
0: Awesome.
1: <laughs> but yeah, and that's sort of how that sort of came about, I guess. But yeah.
0: That's so cool. And so, what's that like? You just spent ten years in the Navy Band, full time, traveling around and doing heaps of events and that. What's the day to day like? Is um, it, yeah. You know, just a giant piss up as you go to different events and parties. And...
1: You can't say you can't say piss up anymore. Eh?
0: Or is it a little bit more regimented? <laughs>
1: okay, so yeah, I guess. Look, um, the. The politically correct side of me says, no, it wasn't a giant piss-up. It was all, like, professional, like, practice and and all that sort of stuff. And and actually, it was to some degree. Um, We did a lot of marching practice. We did a lot of – there's different ensembles within the Navy band. So there's, like, small groups and there's rock bands and stage bands and concert bands. So Mm. depending on which one of those you were in, then, you know, you'd often be – you'd spend, like, maybe – Sometimes after you know five or six hours a day rehearsing, and then other days you might not do anything. You might be sort of just doing your own personal practice, I guess. And then yeah. when I when I first joined, it was much more frequent. You do a lot of a lot more like touring around Australia and internationally. So quite often, you know, we we just get in a bus and we tour around Victoria, or you know, we might fly to another state and tour around the states, and we do things that involved, you know, military ceremonies um, and also a lot of public relation things, so, you know, public concerts and, like, recruiting-type activities where you'd go to – you'd do a lot of, like, school, like, workshops and concerts at schools Mm. and you'd have, like, recruiting teams from the Defence or from the Navy come with you and they'd set up and we'd play and, you know, try and – Basically, get kids to come and join the navy. I guess is the main thing, and and promote the image of the navy. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, you, know, you, you do a similar thing overseas. Not not the not the recruiting side of it, but certainly the PR side of it overseas. And the ceremonial side was 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 massive overseas.
0: And you got to go to Gallipoli as well. That would have been incredible experience. I went there in twenty nineteen just for. A look around and and to sort of learn more about the history of the place but to be there on anzac day and have that role that would have been very special
1: yeah that, that was um that was kind of that was probably the highlight of the 10 years and you know we we sort of flew over there and we actually went over with i think there was like a i can't remember how many maybe there's 20 or 30 like you know um veterans from um various wars who went over with us and there was the um, or the federation guard went over as well. So we basically went over there and we, I think about two days before ANZAC day, we went down to the peninsula and we did all the battlefield tours. And then, you know, as you see on the TV, we, we basically mm-hmm. played at the dawn service, which was, you know, it was an incredible experience. It was just, it was very surreal and, and, you know, it, having been there you know what like what it's like in the the territory that they had to sort of cover and the terrain it was just you know it would have been horrific a- and you get a real sense of like i guess how how bad it must have been for them i think when you when you see that terrain and you see how like steep it was it was really it was incredible
0: and how small that beach is like
1: yeah exactly exactly
0: and and then cliffs <laughs> it's just yeah incredible
1: yeah, exactly. They, you know, they would have been sitting ducks, really. Yeah, that was an amazing experience. And it, it's kind of funny because you see, like, on the TV, you see, like, um, you know, the hour or so of the ceremony and stuff. But we – I think we got there at 1 o'clock in the morning because, you know, there's security and there's crowds and all that type of thing. So we kind of, like, get there really, really early and then just waited around. And it gets about 4.30. It was just freezing cold. And you're trying to – then when the actual thing starts and you know, it's really difficult to actually play, you know, mm. quite well when it's in those conditions. So yeah, I guess the the point is that, like what you see on TV is the end product of like um, a, de- a degree of like suffering for us <laughs> as as bandies. <laughs> but yeah, but in the in the in the greater context, not that big a yeah, deal.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so what did you do? Like you had also a few trips. Uh, around Southeast Asia on HMS yeah. Torrens, HMS Sydney. What do you do as a bandy when the the ship's at sea?
1: Yeah, so we do um, a variety of things. So, yeah, my, my two sea trips was in 1998, I went on HMS Torrens, which was the last, that was like the final operational deployment for that ship. And then 2002, I went to HMS Sydney. And they're very similar in terms of like the, time frame and the areas are you know, around Southeast Asia. But essentially what you you would do is you would get on the ship and then you, if if there's an opportunity while you're underway and, and you could get your, your um, or your kid out and do some rehearsals, you might sit out in the flight deck or something like that and do some rehearsals, which is often quite difficult, you know, particularly if the weather was bad or if, you know, they were doing like um, some sort of off to the watch moves or something. It's, it's, pretty much impossible to do to, to rehearse when the shit's mm. rolling around the place like that um but then you'd also try and and it was kind of I kind of felt as though it was like dependent on the individual to a degree as to how involved you wanted to get within things but like you try and get involved with you know, basic duties around the ships and you do, like, you know, watchkeeping and stuff with the bosun's mates. So that that would involve, you know, like life voice and, like, um, helmsman tricks and that type of thing. And and I found that that was a good way to actually build some rapport with, mm. you know, people in the ship's company because bandies aren't the, I guess they're not, not the most popular category in the Navy. At least they weren't back then. I'm not sure what it's like now. But, yeah, we are sort of perceived as, like, Overpaid and um, not very hard workers, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, in our defence, I'd argue we were we were quite well paid given our um, you know, level of experience it takes to actually be able to do that job. Mm. But yeah, um, yeah. But it, it, it was really interesting. You got to do a lot of you know, a lot of lot of stuff that you know it was it had novelty value for us, I guess, in some respects. Mm. Um, but it also helped to learn about how ships function and and just also to get on with the rest of the crew on the ship. Yeah, And you
0: did the Olympics as well, didn't you?
1: Played there. Yeah. That was the other, that was the other big thing was the Olympics. We did, um, did that in two, was it 2000? Yeah. And then, um, that was, I guess probably the, the culminating part of that was the, um, the closing ceremony. So it was kind of funny. I didn't, didn't actually play at the closing ceremony, but I was present. So the, um, these things, you know, are often mimed, and that was one of those occasions. There was, there was like, um, I don't actually remember the Olympic Stadium because they had like the two, the big tiered seating parts at the end of it when it was when it was AC Olympics, yeah. and right across the back of those tiered seating sections at the end, there was like these fanfare, fanfare trumpeters, and we were all standing up there holding, miming this fanfare for the closing ceremony. Mm. Um, and, and, yeah, it was really cool to be there. But, yeah. So you
0: just blow up your cheeks and, and make some...
1: <laughs> yep. Pretty, pretty pretty much. Recorded. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it, was, it was so awesome to be in Sydney at that time, though, because, I don't know, I just remember, like... And we, we did a lot of um, public performances as well around the city and around the Olympic sort of um, events areas. And I, I remember, like, no one seemed to be in a bad mood in Sydney. Everyone was happy. There was no, like, you know, angst. It was all just good vibes everywhere. So it was, you know, it was a really cool experience to be actually living in that city at the time, I reckon. Mm.
0: And you met your wife while you a bandy too, didn't you? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, I met Sarah. So Sarah was, um, Sarah used to be the principal vocalist in the Navy. She joined in 1999. And, yeah, I met her met her in the band and, yeah, we've sort of been together since. She She's, you know, got out and joined the Army as well.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Bass guitar player
1: gets the lead singer, hey? Ah, uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> On paper, it looks cool. But but I roll with that. Yeah, wrong with that. Yeah, why not? So, um,
0: what was your motivation to leave the navy and study nursing
1: then? I, so, my motivation to leave the navy was I got to about year seven mark, and I, and whilst I was having a great time and enjoying myself and doing all this cool stuff, I decided that. I probably needed to find a career that was going to be a bit more sustainable over the long term because the um, the lifestyle of the Navy band was certainly not going to, I don't know, keep me alive for a long time, I don't think.
0: <laughs> it was too much tea and biscuits, uh, I imagine. You yeah, something know, like that,
1: yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I decided to... Um, to have a think about what the next the next move was, and then it, I went back to my schooling years and thought, what qualification have I got from high school to got to get into university? Yeah. And then I realised I had nothing, so I did um I went and did a bridging course to get into university, and um I, I I had a um I saw an ad in the paper one day. I was I was actually on a plane going away with the band, and I saw this ad. And it was the advertising for registered nurses who wanted to become paramedics. So I think it was like a it was like a post grad course or something that could give you like a dual you know registered nursing paramedicine qualification, and to join the New South Wales um, ambulance. And I thought, oh, that sounds cool, like being an ambulance officer. Maybe I'll look into that. And um, I sort of pursued that a little bit, and then I decided that I'd actually. Because my mum was a nurse, I thought maybe nursing would be a better option just in terms of like, you know, a bit more versatility and, you know, then I could do paramedicine as well at some point if I wanted to. And that's, I guess, how I made that decision. In terms of what drew me to actually healthcare, I think it might have just been, I reckon it was probably just like in my blood a little bit because mum was a nurse, I think, you know, to, it's a bit cliche, but I do like helping people, I guess, even though I'm a bit of a grump. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, you know, it is It is quite satisfying to help people. And I kind of like, I guess I like talking to strangers from all walks of life. It's one of the things I do enjoy doing. Yeah.
0: So partway through your undergraduate degree, uh, you got picked up by the Army. and How was that transition from... Playing in the navy band to yeah. being a army nurse, very different services and roles.
1: Yeah, was, yeah, they are very, very different experiences. Yeah, initially, I didn't really notice it because I was, I was on the the graduate, like the um undergraduate scheme. So, the first sort of three years, I didn't really have much to do mm-hmm. with the army. A little bit of interaction here and there, but not much, and then. Once I got into my first posting, which was at one HSB in two thousand and nine, that's when it sort of all started to, you know, look really different for me. Aside from the uniform and the and the way you salute, the I found the I found that the army quite a lot more regimented than the Navy. Yeah. Um, and I also found like whilst, you know, we were serious and about what we did in the Navy, the I found that there was a, a a much greater seriousness to the the way that the army operated, particularly in health, because you know we were seeing people in Afghanistan and and you know looking after seriously injured people in Afghanistan, and there was a there was definitely a, more, a much more serious undertone to to the job that was being done. Yeah, um, and whilst I didn't look back on my bandy life and go, oh gee, that that was that was pointless, I did. So I look back and get a bit of an understanding of why some other people in the in the defence force thought bandies were a bit overpaid and a bit, and a, and a bit <laughs> uh, you know. But I, I didn't. I didn't, certainly don't think that. But yeah, yeah, I could see why people would think that. Um, but that's definitely not the case at all. Like, you know, everyone has a role to play and it's all important. Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a lot more serious and and also you know there's the yeah, you know, field. Obviously, mm. you have to go to field in the army. That was different, and going field in the army is much more uncomfortable than going to sea on a ship.
0: Mm. Or staying in a hotel.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I was staying in a hotel. There's a lot of that over the years.
0: Sleeping on the ground and being wet, cold, yeah. and miserable is yeah. a prerequisite, yeah. isn't it? So, not long into your first posting in late two thousand and nine. Uh, you were recalled from leave, weren't you? I think you told me years ago to go yeah. to Padang after that massive 7.6 magnitude earthquake yep. devastated a large part of Sumatra.
1: Uh, yeah, so um, that that was um, really unexpected. That I guess that either um, we got recalled, that I got recalled, but B, that it was actually me and not some other people in the unit. I kind of felt that I was, I'm not sure how I made the top of the list I did so. Anyway, we'd just done like exercise, television and saver. So, um, you know, the unit was really quite, you know, quite ready to be able to pick up and move at short notice. And once you know that, once we were told that there was a requirement for us to go to Padang, and it was pretty, it was very frantic. But it's, but in the same. In the same breath it was very a fairly smooth um sort of process to get everything palletized and out to the to the raft base and onto and, and ready to be able to go. I think the thing that I do remember distinctly though is the, is the um is the weight limits that we could take like the personal weight limits we could take in the plane and being told to like empty our water bottles and, Yeah. Um, and and then thinking and everyone's sort of thinking, hang on, we're going to like this like sort of tropical area and we're not going to take any water with us it's going to be good and not not really because not really knowing where we're actually going to like we had no idea what what was going to come next because no one really knew at that point yeah I mean as it turns out it didn't really it didn't really matter in the end but it was but I think we're on like 48 hours notice to move once once that sort of whole process was was set in place and everything was ready to go and that eventually, you know, they gave us the call, and and, and we're gone within sort of twenty four hours. I think, I think. So, what did you take
0: over initially?
1: You yeah, so initially it was the, um, we took like the full, like surgical hospital. Um, mm-hmm. so I, like basically it was set up to do you know trauma surgery and whatever else um, needed to be needed to be done. So all the reserve surgeons and anaesthetists and specialist nurses that go with that all got recalled and we're all ready to go and I can't remember how many people went over initially but it was was a fair few and then we we went over there and we sort of we hit the ground and we didn't um we didn't go straight out to Padang we landed in Jakarta and we ended up going to like this is kind of a bit weird we ended up going to like the Shangri-La resort (laughs) in Indonesia in Jakarta. And um,
0: Back in the band.
1: <laughs> yeah, it kind of felt like that, yeah. And everyone everyone sort of went there and thought, oh, cool, this is like it'll be one night here and then we'll be gone. And then yeah. one turned into two and then three and four. And we ended up being there for like a whole week, like in this shangri mm-hmm. resort. And no one had any like civvy clothes with them. So we we're wearing uniforms most of the time. But day four, they took us out on a shopping trip and said, go and buy some civilian clothes so that you don't, at least try and not look like you're in the army in the Australian army and then i can't I can't remember what day this all happened but at some point throughout that time they um, actually they actually um, downgraded the, the requirement for the the capability and they sent home like essentially all the surgical elements that were sent over there all got sent back to australia and the full surgical hospital never got never got sent up and that was about day seven. What was left, which is basically, I guess, oh, how do you describe it? It was, it was mostly a primary healthcare team, with you know some resource capability and that type of thing. That that's what went out into the field. So, and one, once again, I was like really surprised that I made the cut. <laughs> not not sure how they how they decided like who went and who didn't, but yeah, I was I was one of the lucky ones who ended up ended up um staying which was really good sort of from there we went up to this little village i can't remember what was it called a sangai giung giunging i think it was called or something like that and it's about 70 it's about 70 odd k's up in the mountains like sort of north of penang and it was this little area and we set up on this like soccer field and like the local area you could see sort of driving out there it was quite devastated from the earthquake and, and all that type of thing and you know, a lot of collapsed houses and a lot of people, you know, who were living in tents or like lean, like under hoochies type of thing, like outside of their house, because clearly their house was, you know, probably too unstable for them or unsafe for them to go into. So that that was quite striking. And then um, once we, you know, set up on this field, we basically became the local like medical centre because that had been destroyed by the earthquake. And the first couple of days, like, I don't remember we got, I don't remember getting a lot of a lot of people through the door because I don't think word of mouth had gone out that we were there. But then um, by about day three or four, we were getting like lots and lots of people and we sort of had a daily sick parade. And and the things we saw, it wasn't, I don't remember seeing a lot of earthquake-related presentations, but there was a lot of like, primary health care type relate, um, like presentations. There was some like there was some, you know, minor trauma. Like there was a guy, like so, there was a motorbike accident. There was like a pregnant lady came in. There's like a young girl. This is like probably the um, the one presentation that I I remember from that trip the most is this, this young girl. She was, about, she was about four or five. And she'd had like boiling hot water spilled on her legs and scalded her legs mm-hmm. quite badly. And I'm not sure whether, I think, you know, because, because their medical, you know, system um, had been sort of, you know, destroyed from the earthquake and stuff, they, she, she hadn't had much medical care, this this poor thing. And she ended up coming to us and we, she had quite badly infected wounds. And, you know, we ended up, we had to sedate her and we cleaned her wounds and got her some antibiotics and, and dressed them. And then we got her to come back every day that we were there to, you know, redress the wounds and manage these wounds. Um, but yeah, it was this I guess it kind of hit home the stark reality of what they don't have and what we have in Australia and how good it is here, I think, is probably the yeah. the main thing, yeah. But there was all sorts of things like, you know, we'd see people with T B and that type of stuff. And we and we mm-hmm. did um we did like a lot of like little satellite satellite and day clinics. So little groups of, you know, medics and nurses go out into the the different areas where we thought, oh, maybe they haven't been um, sort of seen yet. And we do like vaccination clinics and primary healthcare clinics and that type of thing. And then eventually Mm -hmm. the, you know, the the new medical center was built by the engineers and handed over and then it was all drawn down.
0: So were you providing med support to Australian engineers and that at the same time as providing that primary healthcare capability for the local population yeah
1: so yeah so we did that was yeah we did both yeah so we did like obviously medical support for our guys and also the primary healthcare stuff for the for the you know healthcare for the locals whatever they needed yeah it was it was really it was really interesting experience and oh, geez i remember um like it's just one of those situations because you you go like people would come in i remember this guy came in and he had like a yeah like clearly had chronic hypertension And I thought, like we could we could just, yeah, we had we could give him a box of like antihypertensives and and send him away. But he he's not going to follow up on that because there's no capability that he'd be able to go to for that to be followed up. Like he wouldn't just have to. There's no GP for him to go Mm -hmm. and see. There's no specialist to go and see him or anything like that, or any way that he would be able to, you know, afford a script for these ongoing medications. And you're like, you kind of. I guess you, you don't want to overstep the mark in terms of what you're doing, but try and do what you can, I guess, is the thing. Like, yeah. if you can do little things to help people like that, then it makes a big difference, but you can't do what you would necessarily want to do or what you doing in Australia sometimes, I think. Mm.
0: Yeah. Talked about this before with Tash and that. Sometimes your, your ethical compass takes a little hit when you can't yeah. give the full suite of care to people and you know that unless you can fix that problem in today's visit, uh, you can only, you're just putting band-aids on otherwise. and
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly. must yeah. have been
0: frustrating sitting back in Jakarta too for that week and wanting to get up there and, and help. Obviously, people who had serious trauma from the earthquake have either lived anyway or died anyway by the, the time you get there regardless. Mm. But that sitting and waiting when you just want to get in and get on with it, would
1: have been tricky. Yeah, it was. I mean, the first couple of days it was a novelty, and it was like, oh, this mm. is funny, this is cool. But but then by about day three, four, people were starting to get really frustrated, and just I guess you know, I've, I mean, I I felt kind of embarrassed being there. You'd go out, and you know, you're um you're walking around in this in this hotel, which is a five star hotel. And there's all these people walking around looking at you, thinking, "Oh, you're amazing! You're doing such a great job!" And it's like, actually, we haven't actually done anything yet. Mm. We sat here and eaten three meals a day, and yeah, just chilled out. So it was kind of, and yeah, it was a bit embarrassing, um, and yeah, it was very frustrating because, like you said, that by the time we got got set up, like all the, like you said, the people have either either been killed or you know they've been they've been treated by in in, in other, other clinics or other facilities. So we didn't see any of that major trauma. We did see like the odd person come in who'd been managed locally or something and and they weren't mm-hmm. um you know, they needed some ongoing treatment I guess. There was one there was one like lady came in, she had a fractured arm, it was like a compound fraction. they like sutured up her wound and put plaster over the top of it and it mm-hmm. was just, you know, it was really badly infected and just in a bad way. she and we ended up end up just like pulling it all apart and and giving me a washout and and then packing it and sending it down to we sent her off to she had, she had means to be able to get to like one of the bigger um hospitals so you know we sent her down there with a letter and said this this is yeah this is not good she needs like you know operation sort of thing but yeah that that was the that was kind of the type of thing we'd see from the earthquake I guess.
0: And what was that delay? Was that just because the roads and the infrastructure was shattered? They, they just couldn't get everyone and all the equipment up to where it needed to be?
1: Um, no, I don't... Look, I, I'm not certain of the detail as to what the delay was. My understanding was it was more of a... Um, there was there was that much... There was so many resources, like, directed to the country all at once that, that it was quite overwhelming and... Um, no one really knew where to send us.
0: Yeah, okay. So the following year you went off to the Solomon Islands on Op Anode. What was that mission and your role?
1: Yeah, so that that was like um that was part of so that was on Op Anode, which was part of Ramsey, which is the regional assistance mission to the Solomon Islands. And essentially what what we did is that I don't know if you remember but like the previous election had resulted in some fairly significant riots and unrest in the country and what because the the election was coming up when i went over there they they sent over some extra um reserve infantry from something is like an extra platoon from australia and maybe like new zealand and tonga or something like that and as a you know rear reaction force if there was you know, any political unrest. And they they had a fairly, they they also just showed a just a constant presence throughout that election period in the event that something might have been brewing. And my role in that I went over with doctor um and a couple of medics and we essentially were a like a, a ready reaction medical team if something did happen and there was any medical assistance required. And as it turned out, nothing did. It was all. It all went very peacefully and very smoothly. So yeah, it was. It was kind of, in a lot of ways, it was a bit of a non-event. But you know, it was kind of. It was a very. It was an important thing to be involved in at the same time. And it was a great. It was a beautiful part of the world. It's <laughs> great to go and visit the place. To be honest, and and I, and the the medical highlight of my trip was I, I relocated a, a gentleman's pinky finger that he dislocated playing touch football. <laughs> And he he declined he declined any analgesia and just was happy for me to do it on the side of the the uh, football field. So yeah, and that went smoothly, which is Great. good. <laughs> and <laughs> we, we did a lot of we did a lot of um we did a lot of um like return to Australia health checks as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All got to be done. But exactly. It's nice to be getting out and about and having Absolutely, yeah. presence in the Asia Pacific and being able yeah. to help out our neighbours.
1: Yeah, and I think you know you look at those sorts of things and you think, oh, I didn't really do much, but I think that um, the the fact that you're there and and the presence and relationship building, I think, is you know, it can't be understated in terms of its importance in the greater picture yeah. um, for Australia. And I so the, one of the other things you did do there was there was like a there's a hospital there, and we went and did a couple of shifts in the local hospital in the emergency department. But that kind of got turned off for various reasons. But yeah, that was that was pretty interesting too.
0: Yeah, just seeing how adaptive and innovative people have to be with what
1: they've yeah. got. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, without you know the benefit of a CT scanner for every patient, mm. it's, it's, it's um, yeah interesting. Yeah.
0: What do you think our biggest medical lessons learnt were from those HA operations around that time?
1: Oh, uh, look, I think um, I think the biggest thing to keep in the back of mind is like you you've got to uh, thinking back to Padang and how like I didn't really talk about the conditions like it was you know every day it was you know we're on this football field and every day you'd get like an inch and a half of rain in the afternoon, mm. and so we're living in like. You know, mud a lot of the time, and you know, eating eating ration packs. And I think that one of the most important things is that you can't help them if you're not helping yourself. So you've got to like, don't ever forget the basic, the basics of being in the army, and and actually like making sure that you're okay to go before you think about others, because you you can't do anything if you're if you're not looking after yourself first. Mm -hmm. And I think the really big medical lesson is that you've got to. Put into context where you are and what is already in existence, and you, can't, you just can't—you just can't try and make it into a first-world country situation when you're when you're in those conditions. You've got to, you know, small things make a big difference in those places. Even a, you know, a packet of panadol will make a huge difference to someone's life in those mm-hmm. in those types of places. You don't have to do much to improve their lives in, in quite a significant way. I think is the big thing for me.
0: Yeah. So, oh, 2011. You got the nurseo Dream posting to I
1: <laughs>
0: Special Operations in Sydney.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, what was your role there?
1: Yeah, so that was um that was posting number 2 and um so there was like a couple of big things I guess happened over that period. The first 12 months essentially was um was like focusing on the like the the counterterrorism side of things. So, I guess when I when I got posted, there, the the basic the standard sort of um, I guess um, progression was you'd spend twelve months doing like CT, and then you'd you know the following twelve months you'd probably do six months of like pre-op sort of workup and then deploy for six months that mm-hmm. type of or something along those lines. So, yeah, essentially the first twelve months was um, was focused on like doing like sea and Training, so you did like the CBRN medic course and, and like extra, you know, extra weapon qualifications. You might have to do like, you know, M4 and like 9 mil that type of thing. And, you know, learning how to use um, night vision, all that type of stuff, which you didn't really sort of do much in the HSB, I suppose. Okay. And, you know, doing a lot of that CBRN medical training and doing a lot of the, um, the call exercises with the, with like, um, like Tag East, which involved, like the commandos and the engineers and doing, you know, search and rescue type things. And that that was really interesting. It was really taxing. It's you know, it, getting caught out at very short notice and being on call all the time is, is quite is quite hard work. So yeah. That that was sort of the main thrust of it. And then throughout that period, I can't remember what time of the year it was, but there's there's like when the like the when Barack Obama visited Australia, so he went up to he, he came came to Sydney and then went to Darwin and basically was stood up like Tag East was stood up for that period to you know basically follow him around the country and um, be ready to respond mm-hmm. to any like um counterterrorism threat that that might have evolved out of that. And that that was whilst we didn't do anything, thankfully it was a really interesting experience. And then sort of I remember standing in Darwin and someone. You know, and someone sort of pointed out the the plane, like Air Force One, flying off into the sunset, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and kind of like, you know, everyone's like, "Yeah, we're finished," and getting a plane to go home.
0: We attempted to get the tuber out and just, you know, give him a little serenade <laughs> give <him> a serenade. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh. yeah, I
1: don't don't know how interesting you would have been to be honest. but <laughs> You always try. I
0: think. <laughs> It, it's um it's interesting talking about it because a lot of people don't realise exactly what health professionals in the military do, and there's so much more than just that clinical role. Here you are on counterterrorism for a, a yeah. foreign president visit, and yeah, you know, yeah, your boots on the ground, you're yeah, yeah, it's, it's just phenomenal. The uh, leadership staff, the equipment management, yeah. the personnel yeah. management, and all the The worry things that you get to do too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's like, I think, no matter what, um, whether you're a medic, nurse, or or doctor, or whatever, it's the unique experiences you get in the military. It's like people don't understand or realize that those sorts of things Mm. actually go on. And I think the general public don't really realize those sorts of things go on behind the scenes to make those. Yeah, like presidential visits, for example, sort of happen in a way that you know is 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 going to be safe and and smooth. So yeah, to be involved in those type of things, it's pretty it's pretty yeah. surreal experience. Um, yeah, and just and also like like yeah, that's right. And that that first year I was there, I, I know I was lucky enough to go overseas on a couple of courses as well to the United States, just doing like CBRN training, which is which is really this is a really good yeah. experience as well. Yeah, so when I went over to like the United Services uniform university in, in washington and did a couple of cbrn courses over there which is which is really good as well
0: now looking back on what you know about cbrn do you ever walk into your civilian emergency department and think shit we're so not prepared if anything went down in australia
1: oh absolutely yeah i mean I don't think I've ever heard anyone mention it where I work now. And that's not a slight on them by any stretch of the imagination. But I just, you know, I think um, I I don't, I mean, I don't don't know what the intelligence says that threat would be, I guess. But I think, you know, if it were a threat and we didn't know about it and something happened, yeah, we'd be well and truly undercooked in terms of our response to it. Um, And I think, you know, that we'd be relying incredibly heavily on, the military to, to um, you know, work through those situations. Yeah.
0: And I, I get that you got a you got a plan for most likely, and and this is, you know, very unlikely, but you still need a bit of a plan. Mm. I think we're a bit undercooked, as you said. Yeah, absolutely. When you, you go to a major mm. tertiary referral hospital and you rock up in the ambulance bay and there's two decon showers in a city of 5 million people or something, you think. Yeah. 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 How do we search yeah.
1: that in a hurry? But anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly.
0: Twenty twelve. You got the
1: Guernsey over to Afghan. Yeah. So, yeah. That was the. That was the. Um. I guess the next big part of that. That. Um. That posting. And by by then. Um. I'll add it. It was no longer IWR. It was. It was. Um. Special Operations Engineer Regiment. By then, mm-hmm. it changed names halfway through. So yeah, it was like once again just a like out of this world experience I suppose and you don't um you think oh, I went overseas for six months but people people who haven't been through it they don't count the six months prior to going overseas and, and mm-hmm. the stress and the the training and the and the workup involved in doing something like that it's in like an incredible amount of work which you know draws on so many different people to help you get through that that was I mean the the special operations task group, that whole rotation process was pretty slick already. So you had a really really good structure to, to, to sort of roll into, I guess. But it, nonetheless it's still a lot of work. But yeah. And then I I went over in um in June on rotation eighteen and there was myself, like there was the primary healthcare team and, and there was the, the company medics as well. And was over there for six months and you know, that that was probably in terms of my military career, that was probably the you know, that was probably the pointy mm. end of the of the military career I guess. In yeah, just in like total, I suppose. Yeah, amazing experience and you know, probably I don't know, I guess if I was still in I'd probably probably like be aspiring to do more of that sort of stuff, yeah. I suppose, yeah.
0: What was your role over there?
1: So I basically went over as the primary healthcare nurse, so working in the REP. So, you know, you do your normal day-to-day stuff like running a sick parade and, you know, any appointments that were made throughout the day, you'd, you'd be taken care of. There's some training involved, you know, helping with, like, training the the, the company medics and that type of thing. And then there was the – I didn't work so much in the role 2E. I did a lot of work with the dust-off um, crews. So I'd go over and do, like, 24-hour shifts with the dust-off um, AME mm. teams. So – I'd probably go over there maybe once or twice a week. So you'd, you'd go over there and and basically just whenever there was a, a nine lighter dropped, you'd get in the helicopter and go out and do the the air medical retrieval. And that was I. Well, I remember getting back to Australia and thinking to myself, "Wow, I don't think I'll ever like go to be able to go to like a theme park and get onto a ride and like yeah. have, <laughs> and have my adrenaline get get pumping and get on my heart rate go up because it was this the most wild adrenaline rush like I've ever sort of yeah. experienced, I think. You know, getting woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning to just grab your med kit and your weapon and just run out and get on a helicopter and then go out into the night to pick up, you know, you know, who knows what. Because sometimes you'd get the nine-liner and it was, you know, it would be a cat C and then you pick them up and they're like, clearly not a cat C, it's for like an A. And... and and not really, so you yeah, often you just wouldn't know what you're getting. But, yeah, it was just amazing, like an amazing experience.
0: And you're also landing in a hot zone. Like there's a reason someone's been injured, they've been blown up, they've been shot, and you're, yeah, <laughs> yeah no, adrenaline like none other. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think, yeah. you know, the and you know often you would land in a hot zone, often you wouldn't. Um, it, was, it was so variable. Like I think one of the, one of the big things that took me about that that whole sort of thing was, you know, sometimes the flights would only go for like 20 minutes in total or something, like you'd be out and back really quickly. But what you could do in that time, once again, really simple, like just focusing on, you know, airway, breathing, circulation with a, with a C at the top for, you know, catastrophic hemorrhage. Like you couldn't. If you just kept that in the forefront of your mind and kept everything really simple, I found as that found as though that was the 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 most I know most productive way to spend your time in the in the back of the helicopter because you couldn't you know it was difficult to do to do much that wasn't just fairly rudimentary and basic in there because it's the you know it's really it's dark it's very noisy it moves around a lot it's not always you know sometimes the helicopter would, you know sort of I guess, you know, banking that quite quickly without without warning and it was, you know, made things a bit tricky. And and they're not they're not the most comfortable things in the world to to get in and, and sort of, you know, work around, I guess, the back of the black horse, yeah. So what were the
0: standout kind of clinical jobs you did?
1: I guess the the main one the main ones are the like there was there was big trauma, like there was you know, like there was amputated limbs, like and those gunshot wounds. I think the the big standout ones for me were like the um, like there was the Australian green on blues, yeah, and that that was quite that was quite tricky.
0: Bloody tragic, really. When you're there supporting a partner force and uh, that sort of stuff is happening.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's really, it's really, it's and it's quite confronting as well. Like you just sort of, you know, you sort of sit back and think, oh, geez, like. This is actually our guys. It really. Mm.
0: It's
1: quite, quite hard.
0: How did you find working with the Afghans in general as a partner force?
1: Um, look, to be honest, I, I didn't work with them a huge amount. The little I did work with them, like I didn't, I didn't have any, um, any issue with it. And to be honest, like they seemed fine, like they you know, they seemed overwhelmingly helpful. I, I had, you know, some limited interaction with the interpreters and that type of thing and they were you know, they were that were very helpful as well. But I guess I guess the big thing, like, after those green and blue incidents that happened when I was over there, it was very much it became a bit of a shut shop after them. And you certainly felt as though that you were you were all of a sudden like really um, suspicious of everyone. That's the way I felt, anyway. So yeah, it was a it was a different experience. But yeah, I mean, I thought overwhelmingly they were they were fine for my interactions with them. It was it, was, it was really um once again is that yeah you're looking at the difference between what we do and how how you know countries like Afghanistan do it. I remember doing an Ame for one of the Ana soldiers, and we we took him to. We took him to Kandahar to where the like the Afghan like the military, their version of the military hospital was, and we dropped him off. And the the Afghan army like like their ambulance came up to the to like up to where the um the helicopter had landed, and he came over and we took him over and we put him into the back of his of his ambulance, and we sort of went oh something's not right here. We realised he was the only one there. And we're like, and the, oh, sorry, I forgot, forgot to add, this guy was intubated.
0: Okay. <laughs> and,
1: and he was the only one there. Oh, and no. it's like, hang on, who's going to like look after him in the back? And he's like, oh no, I'll do it. And we're like, what? And yeah, he was like literally driving and oh, with no. one hand behind his back, like, you know, on the bag, mass valve, like breathing for this guy. Yeah, I know, and you just kind of, you kind of look at that and you go, oh, goodness. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're doing what they can, aren't they, and assist. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's 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 hard. But you kind of look and you go, well, it is what it is. You can't do anything. Yeah. And, and the, yeah, the yeah, the other <laughs> the other highlight of my AME experience over there was um, I ame a dog. One of the working military dogs got AME'd, so that was pretty cool as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah.
0: I remember working in the Roll 2 Echo and, uh, you'd have like person, 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 dog on the next bed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. There was an American vet there for a while who um, was pretty good, but then she left. So this would give us a basic rundown of how to resuscate a working dog and get lines in and hemorrhage control. And yeah, Ugh. they're so important. Great for morale, and um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we lost a dog, and it was so sad. Yeah, yeah, just to see the devastation on the handler's face, and you know, I mean, he'd he'd stopped an IED being um, discovered by a person, but yeah, just yuck. Yeah, love the dogs.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, no, it's all. I mean, it's just amazing the sorts of things you do over there, India. You, you know, it's it blows my mind sometimes when I think about it. To be honest, yeah, it feels like another
0: lifetime sometimes,
1: doesn't it? It does, yeah. Mm. It's you know, it does feel like it's very, it's very, um, I don't know, it's very, it's very separate to what I do now. It's 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 such a different world. You know, even at the moment working in a public um, emergency department, it's just still, you just sort of look at it and you go, oh, it's just out of this world a good experience, though.
0: Yeah. I think one of the best things about military medicine is the bare bones clinical, in that Mm. you take away all the policies and paperwork and procedures and checklists and things that you have to do over here, and you can just focus on taking care of that person with the resources you have and doing the very best you can for them without, you know... Getting a slap over the risk if you haven't done a falls risk assessment or yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's exactly right. Sign
0: the handover form in the 25 places, like it's no. uh, yeah, it just yeah. takes it back to simple, really good, uh, life saving care,
1: mm. absolutely. And you, you do get to, um, you do get to use like not only your own, like if you have a, a I don't know, I don't want to say this in a way that, like, that sounds, you know, I guess, um, cowboys, but you do have a, an extended set of skills over there that you wouldn't be able to use in Australia. Yes. Um, and, you know, th- that's just the reality because if you don't do that, then no one else is going to do it. To a, to a degree, you can't live in the box-ticking world that is the, the public system over here. And that, that, that certainly has its place and it's – definitely a requirement in terms of governance and you have to have governance overseas as well yeah. but you've also got to like you've also got to like um you know have a sense of practicality about how you do things over there as well
0: mm. and you've got to just be able to justify it to yourself at the end of the day don't
1: you so, absolutely yeah Yeah, absolutely and i think you know there's you know um i, I heard dan pronk talk about decompressing a chest in the back of a, a helicopter in a fairly unconventional way when he was over there and, you know, he got frowned upon for doing that, but he saved a guy's life. So, mm. so I think, you know, you'd do it, you do it every day of the week, wouldn't you?
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. How did you feel coming home from that trip?
1: Oh, look, to be honest, it was a bit, it was a bit weird initially. Like, um, just really, um, I don't know, I kind of felt a bit, I wouldn't say angry, but frustrated. Mainly, like I'd sort of, I'd, I went. I remember I went to the the shopping center one day, and I was like, just sitting there having a coffee and listening. I heard someone complaining about their coffee order or something, and I got quite agitated about it. Mm. Um, having to, you know, come from you know this not so great place and thinking, God, really, just get over it, lady. like, do you know what I mean? Like, yes. and just, I guess it was a there was just a, a heightened sense of irritability for quite some time after I got back. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, it, you know, I've worked through that and that it wasn't, it wasn't the easiest time in my life, I guess, but I, I guess I was lucky I had great support around me. So, yeah, that that really helped.
0: And Sarah deployed pretty much straight after you, didn't she? So you guys were tag-teaming, taking care of the kids and that?
1: Yeah, so she actually deployed to AMAB um, about two months before the end of my rotation. Yeah. And then, um, we actually met up in AMAV on my way home and then got the same flight home. So yeah, it was, that was pretty cool. And it was kind of, it was kind of like a scene out of like a, out of like Top Gun or something. Cause I remember, <laughs> cause like Sarah knew I was coming, like I was flying into AMAV from Afghan and, and, um, she was waiting for my plane to come in and then like, you know, um, Got off the plane and ran over the tarmac and gave her a hug and stuff, it was quite cool, yeah, nice, yeah, but that, yeah, and then, um, and then we sort of went home three days later, which is good, hmm. and met met Henry, um, who was our only child at the time at the airport, which was awesome,
0: yeah, it definitely takes a family, doesn't it, to
1: oh, absolutely support
0: that, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. How was it being posted then to Holsworthy Health Centre,
1: yeah, look, it was. It was actually really good in a lot of ways because I wasn't on call anymore. I wasn't, you know, doing pre deployment training and it was just a really in comparison a really laid back, regular a a rest. Rest, yeah. Yeah. Um and whilst it wasn't the most stimulating like job I've had and like I'm not sure if you remember too much Ember me and management were not really the greatest of companions, <laughs> so so it wasn't really um I was never going to like really shine in that job I guess in, in many ways, but that said it was it was really good and I had um I had a really good like mentor there, Nikki Watson who was she was the OC at the time and she was awesome and I really enjoyed working with her, and yeah look it was it was just good to be able to go back and actually just have a regular day job for for 12 months or so Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and like I actually I actually learned a lot about I guess about people and just how things operate because you know the health center you have like the military you have like the public service and you have like you know contractors all you know in this mixing pot and operating under three different systems to try and achieve what they had to achieve so you know it was a bit of a challenge I guess to to work with all those different three those three different groups of people to, to be able to like you know actually provide a, a really important like service to the to the people of Holesworthy. Mm. So yeah, it was, it was actually quite enjoyable in a lot of ways.
0: I'd love to see our military hospitals expand in Australia in a similar way the US. Yeah. Does business and and take care of our veterans and take care of our families.
1: Uh, wouldn't it? Be, it'd be yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it would yeah. have
0: physical health benefits, but it would have huge mental health benefits. I think.
1: Uh, it'd be unbelievable, and I think you know it took. I remember when I left, like when I left the um the military, and just trying to, and I still really don't have that now, like we're at the moment. But having um having a gp who understands like you know military veterans health and you know how they think i guess is is really important and i think that if he could if he could have a system somehow where you have military hospitals like providing you know a much greater role you know post discharge i think it'd be unbelievable but
0: yeah. but
1: yeah sadly i don't think that would happen in this country to be honest
0: we don't have the economy of scale that the U.S. do. For no, exactly. Birthright. Yeah,
1: exactly. That's exactly right. It's just not big yeah. enough, is it? Which is, um, you know, is what it is. Can't change that.
0: So you decided to study medicine? Yep. 2014, took some leave without pay and launched into that? Yeah. What was the big motivator to become a doctor?
1: Yeah, so um, that all that actually all started like way before I, like I went to Afghanistan. In fact, I think it might have been started in my first year of nursing. I had the thought of, of doing it. And and I had that thought on and off for, like, you know, quite a few years. And every year, I just about it would come up at least once or twice at home. And Sarah would be like, oh, why don't you just do it? And I'd be like, oh, no, because I have to do the game set. And, I, you know, don't really haven't really done any chemistry or like that type of thing. And then I'd, like, put it in a like parker. And then I came back from Afghanistan and, and I um, know oh it was, just, it was before, just before I went to Afghanistan so I said, um, and Sarah said, oh, maybe I'll do medicine when I get back. Sarah's so like, well, if you're going to do it, just get on with it. And I don't want to ever hear you bring up it again. Like, make a decision and, you know, um, or <laughs> make a decision either way, <laughs> but stop bringing it up every single year, basically.
0: Yeah. Just have a crack or park it forever.
1: Just have a crack. I guess the the long and short of it is that, I, with nursing, um, I think if I was going to stay in nursing, I probably would have pushed, like pursued like nurse pre- nurse practitioner or something like that because I'd never want to end up in a like a management like stream. It's just not yeah. my thing. So I'd want to say clinical, and I guess you know get to a situation sort of more like a high level of clinical. Like sort of uh, acuity, I guess.
0: Having the autonomy to make decisions and work with your patient.
1: Yeah, more autonomy is probably the probably the main thing. Yeah, but yeah, that that was probably the main driving factor. Is like you know just be able to have more autonomy and, and just um you know, I guess you know have more opportunity in that regard. Whether I've got that now or yet, I don't think so. I'm not too sure. I don't know. It's a bit hard to say. Being a junior doctor in a hospital. You do and you don't, but yeah, it's it's certainly different and it, it's certainly a change for the better for me anyway.
0: Yeah. It's a ridiculous workload that our junior doctors in yeah. the public health system have and yeah. largely unsustainable but
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Certainly hard work, but it's rewarding work though, so you know, it's good.
0: What would you say your biggest challenge has been to date? And how did you overcome it?
1: Uh, look, there's been quite a few, I guess. I mean, the, the obvious one for me is, like, the reason why I got discharges so I, I got a, an incredibly rare blood disease um, called Palm Syndrome, and that left me with, like, a proof of neuropathy. So I have to wear, I have to, you know, wear, um, like, carbon fibre AFOs on my legs to be able to walk properly. So, I mean, that that's probably the obvious challenges that I've had, sort of, Um, towards the end of my military career and moving forward. I think, you know, the overwhelming, like reason that got, or thing that got me through that was was certainly my family. You know, you can't, I don't think you sort of go through life by yourself and not be able to lean on someone at some point in your life, whether it's family, friends or, you know, or anyone, but you have to, you have to let people to help you. And, you know, I think the other thing that got me through all that overwhelmingly was the fact that I'm just really stubborn um, <laughs> at times if I want to be. So I think just determination and just like support from friends and family is how you do it. And and also the realisation that sometimes, sometimes things don't work out the way you think they're going to work out and you've just got to accept that and, you know, just redefine the goalposts. It's probably yeah probably the thing. I mean I, I always thought when I got into medicine I thought, well, that's it, I'm I'm gonna be on GMS and I'm gonna be a military doctor and you know, I'll be in the army for the for the, the best part of the next fifteen years or something like that, but clearly that was not to be for me. Yeah. So, you know, redefine the goalposts and there's always a there's always a way out. You know, nothing's as bad as it seems. Nothing's as good as it seemed either, probably. But I think mm. you know, if you focus on nothing's as bad as it seems, and just redefining the goalposts is probably the main yeah. thing. Yeah.
0: That leaving the ADF was then taken out of your hands, so it was um, yeah, yeah, absolutely a decision. It was yeah. a medical thing, and yeah. No. Yeah. yeah,
1: and 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 you know, there's plenty of horror stories out there of of people leaving the ADF and whether it be through medical reasons or, or whatever. But I think, by and large, I think if you're in a situation where you're being medically discharged, um, uh, look, I th- it's, it's a very good system if you know how to navigate it and, or you've got someone who can navigate it for you. It's a, it's a very good system and it can be very, very helpful. But, you, but, you know, you, you've got to, like... Like I said, you've got to be open to to being helped as well, and be vulnerable. I guess, mm.
0: yeah, which we're generally not good at.
1: Which is hard; it's not easy. Like I'm not suggesting that it's easy. It's really difficult. Don't get me wrong; it's not saying that it's certainly not something that came easily to me. So, yeah.
0: What do you love about practicing medicine now?
1: Ah, oh, look, I really, I really enjoy like um cause I'm like I said, I'm working in emergency at the moment, and I really enjoy just just talking to people who I don't know um, from all walks of life, you know, whether you're rich, poor or whatever, it doesn't matter. If you're in an emergency department, you've got a kidney stone or you've got like <laughs> inflamed appendix, you're in pain. It just levels people out. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like it's not – it just puts people all on the same playing field and you talk to them and, if, and you know, people are just people and they – and they all ultimately behave in a very similar way I think when they're in when they're in a situation where they're vulnerable because of their medical you know whatever their medical presentation is so I think being able to talk to them and and just work through the that situation with them is you know it's a real privilege and it's, it's really you know it's really rewarding at the end of the day if especially if you can Get someone walking out the door feeling as though you've helped them. It's yeah, you know, it's it's pretty good. Yeah, good feeling. Yeah.
0: We all bleed red at the end of the day, don't we? As they say. The yeah, something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's no, right.
0: What advice would you give anyone wanting to do that sort of mid career change and study medicine?
1: Oh, look. Firstly, I'd say um, don't wait. If you want to do it, just just get on with it. You know, and don't don't feel as though there's going to be any real barrier to you doing it. Like, you know, I think back to my pathways. Like I said earlier, like I didn't even have my VCE and I didn't start university until I was 28 and then I didn't start medicine until I think it was 38 or something. There's so many different, like, pathways to get there. So don't sort of, like, think that you have to come from a certain background or have certain skills or qualifications just, just get on with it and just investigate it and work out what your pathway is going to be, and, and don't ever um. Don't ever get discouraged, or get put off by failing the first time. I was lucky enough to get into medicine the first time I applied. I know plenty of people and plenty of people I went to university with who was their second or third go before they actually got in. It's not easy to get into. It's really competitive. You know, I'm not going to sort of you know, sugarcoat that. But if you persist, if you fail once, go back and, and look at why you didn't get in. Don't rely on your own self-analysis to go, oh, because my GAMSAT score wasn't high enough or because this and that. Get someone else who you know is going to like just be straight up honest with you and say, no, nah, mate, that was wrong. You've got to work on this. Like, there's no point in someone telling you what you want to hear to get better because you won't you won't change the things you need to change so you need to get someone who's going to be like really critical of your you know really critically analyze your your whole process and what you went through to get there and and then go and try and you know improve those things that you need to improve to get in mm. um, and I guess you know the other thing I'd also like say to people particularly you know from uh, military backgrounds, I guess, because that's you know, my background is that make sure you really highlight what you've done in the military, because it may not seem like much to you at the time, but to other people, it actually seems like really significant. And those life experiences look really good on a CV when you're trying to get into these into like, you know, things like medicine. Mm. They look really good. So, yeah. Yeah. Definitely, like leverage off those experiences to try and, you know, give yourself a bit of an advantage over other 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 people.
0: Yeah,
1: and enjoy yourself. Like just, and if you don't get in, don't worry about it. Just come up with a plan B. Hmm.
0: Good advice. What's next for you, Watto?
1: So my next move is um, going to be GP training. So I, I applied for GP training last year, and I've gone into the program for this year and I've deferred it and then next year hopefully I'll be starting my clinical time in GP land, which is uh, about two years and then with fellowship exams at the end of that. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of where I'm heading. So, yeah, and certainly looking forward to it and looking forward to, um, you know, getting out of the hospital shift work uh, routine or lack thereof. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for your time. You've had an incredible career and some really interesting insights into the band call through to get us Jen it's great and yeah. thank you for your
1: service No thank you Em. and yeah thank you for your service too um and thanks for having me on your um on your podcast it's been really enjoyable talking to you and yeah um yeah it's, it's been a really good chat so thank you I appreciate it